teaching podcast. We are a local church in Zealand, Michigan, and we desire to know Christ and to make Him known. We invite you into the same journey with us now as we open the scriptures and as we ask God to teach us and reveal Himself to us in His Word. Thanks for stopping by. Good morning again, everybody. Nice to see you. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 2. And as Tom said, we've got a lot of things going on this morning. In addition to that, we're going to be opening up the book of Esther in the adult, one of the adult Sunday school classes up here. And so looking forward to studying about ancient Persia for a few minutes today uh, in the second hour. And then... Um, um, we're also celebrating communion this morning. Uh, typically we do that every first Sunday of the month uh, because of some of the renovations and stuff going on with our kitchen uh, down by the gym. Uh, we, go, we went ahead and moved that to today to make that hopefully a little bit easier for those who help us prepare that. So even as we begin our study today, just know we're headed towards communion to remember what Christ has done for us through his broken body and his blood poured out for us. This is an incredible reminder. And, and actually, <clears throat> this is kind of the context in which that we celebrate uh, a messianic Passover Seder. You know, when Jesus gathers with his disciples on that eve that he's betrayed, um, he's celebrating Passover. And so we're going to celebrate um, a, a the Lord's Supper here this morning with the juice in the cup, and then we're going to be able to celebrate a more full uh, Messianic Passover with, with a, an actual meal as a part of that. So we invite you to that, as Tom said. Um, Colossians chapter 2, we've been studying together what it means for Christ to be our life. What it means for Christ to be our life. And I just want to remind us from where we've come. In, in, the, in the verses that we recently studied, and I want to kind of hone in on verses 4 through 7. It says this. Paul says this. I'm saying this so that no one will deceive you with persuasive arguments. For I may be absent in body, but I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see how well ordered you are in the strength of your faith in Christ. And then he comes to this big summary statement, which could be, many scholars would argue that this is the summary statement of the book of Colossians. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, overflowing with gratitude. <clears throat> As we finished our study last time, we looked at two different houses. We looked at the house that flesh built, the house that, the house that self-sufficiency built. And I showed you a diagram, kind of like this one, um, except this is the other side of that. I'm just showing you one diagram this morning. Because part of what it means and what it looks like to be rooted and grounded in Christ is to walk in him, is to undergo a process in our life. And this is a continual process. This is not a one and done. This is not something that you're going to hit your, your, your end point of this and you've just arrived now today. We have the fullness of Christ. But the process of walking after Christ involves having a foundation that is built with our relationship with God, with knowing who God is, with knowing who we are, with knowing um, God and his word and his love. Because what we believe, the foundation that is laid, leads to the belief systems that occupy our house. These belief systems then go upwards and they become behavioral patterns in our life. And the reason I want to come back to this just really briefly, because as we talk about walking in him, we always have to remember that behaviors follow beliefs. 
right? Behaviors follow beliefs. In other words, if there's a behavior that is inconsistent with God's word, it means it's because there's a lie or there is a self-strategy down here in the core of our beliefs that is causing us to not trust the word of God, that's causing us to to believe something that's false, that's causing us to walk in a way that's not going to bring life. Now, Regardless of what we, um, like where we're at in the process of building this house or the Lord building this house in our life, if you are in Christ, Scripture says you are a new creation. So really it is, is it, if you're a believer, it's agreeing with what God says about who you are and who he is and what he has done. And the process of taking that and moving that upwards in our life. Does that make sense? Thank you. Okay, very good. As you can tell, my voice is a little lower this morning. Um, <clears throat> rehearsal was fun this morning because I got to sing notes I've never sung um, in the last long while here. We will get through it together. So what does it mean then to walk in Christ? Well, I love this quote by Dr. Randy Smith. He says, the Christian life, right, walking in Christ is the conscious act of knowing, loving, and inviting the course of our life, <clears throat> allowing him to lead us through the day. This is something much more than you come on Sunday, you check in spiritually and you check out Sunday afternoon or Monday or Tuesday. This is a conscious core awareness that we need God in everything. That's what it means. That's what it looks like to live the Christian life. This daily invitation of God, I need you now. And one of the easy places to say, God, I need you now, is when you're like, I've got nowhere else to turn. And God, by his grace, sometimes um, we experience that end of ourself more quickly than other times. But one of the places that's really hard for us to invite God into the course of our life is where we feel like we know everything, when we feel like we are sufficient in and of ourselves, when we feel like we have power to do what we want to do. When we live a self-directed life or a self-centered life, and I would argue every Christian to some extent struggles with this. When we do that, what we do is, the practical reality is that we're not experiencing the power of God in our life because we're not in the process, in that moment, of having a conscious act of knowing, loving, and inviting Jesus into what we're facing right then and there. Does that kind of make sense? Good, I hope so. Um, what I want to talk about today <clears throat> is this next segment. Because Paul is going to talk about, he, he's going to tell the believers to be careful. And he's already talked about persuasive arguments in verse 4 of chapter 2. And persuasive arguments, <clears throat> excuse me, persuasive arguments had to do with people who would desire to win a debate rather than seek truth. But there's more than just persuasive arguments here. He's going to tell the believers, be careful. Be careful. Because they're going to experience things in life where they could be caught off guard if their eyes and their hearts are not walking with the Lord. If, if they're not experiencing this daily act, they might look at something and it looks really good. And it's really meant there as a good piece of bait on the bottom of a pond that's going to snag a fish with a hook in it. So I want to invite you to, um, to either 
stand or remain seated with me. Um, This is an attitude of respect for the word of God as we read together from the scriptures. Colossians chapter 2 says, Be careful that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit based on human tradition, based on the elemental forces of the world and not based on Christ. For the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ, and you have been filled by him, who is the head over every ruler and authority. You were also circumcised in him with a circumcision not done with hands by putting off the body of flesh in the circumcision of the Messiah. Having been buried with him in baptism, you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. And when you were dead in in trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him and forgave us all our trespasses. He erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us and has taken it out of the way by nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them by him. Father, would you help us to understand what this word means today? Spirit, we pray that you would be our teacher, that you would lead and guide us into all truth. We thank you for doing that, as you have promised. Lord, I selfishly pray for a voice for the next few moments here, um, for confidence and clarity to be able to speak, to speak the words you have for us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So he's going to begin in verse 8, and he's going to say, be careful. Be careful. Be careful that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit. Every time I, heard, I hear the, word, the words be careful, I think of <clears throat> one of our family members. Our niece, Claire, is, how old is she? Four? Three. She's three. Um, Ages are just a struggle for me sometimes. She's three years old. She's absolutely adorable. Um, They live in Ohio with my in-laws. And when we were visiting them last year, she was doing this jumping thing by the steps out front of their house, I think is how the story goes. Yes? Okay, good. I always have to check my stories with my wife, and I forgot to check this one to make sure the details are accurate. Um, But she was going by these steps, and she's getting ready to jump down this next step, and she's two or three years old at this point in time, and she's going, careful careful, careful, careful. That's really what she did. She yelled. She's like, oh, and we're like, what is it? And so then she'd come back around. She'd go back up the steps. She'd jump back down the steps and she'd go, careful, careful, careful. And then she yelled, careful again. I think of Paul saying this, be careful, careful, careful. Be careful that you're not taken in through philosophy and through empty deceit. Why would he say that? Because philosophy, philosophy is a great thing to think about, right? We have actual course classes that teach philosophy. The study of knowledge, the, the, the pursuit of truth, depending on where you're studying. <clears throat> but philosophy can be something that can sound really, really good. And it can absolutely lead you off of a cliff. Not only that, 
empty deceit. Not every person has the same foundation from which they're building. In fact, we know that the work of the enemy in our world is to seed lies within our culture, lies within our homes, lies within our churches. In fact, if we look back at the beginning of the story of the Bible, when the Satan, when Satan comes to um, tempt Eve, what does he begin by doing? He begins by seeding a lie. Did God really say? And so from the beginning, it's been a part of um, the life of a follower of Yahweh to have to be very careful that no one takes you captive through empty deceit based upon human tradition, through philosophy, based on elemental forces, and not based on Christ. And I like how in the HJSB it repeats this. It's, it's not just philosophy and empty deceit. It's philosophy and deceit based upon something. Based upon human tradition, based upon elemental forces of the world, and not based on Christ. So he's setting up a, a um, kind of a comparison here. What are you basing your philosophy on? What are you basing your thoughts or your beliefs on? <clears throat> and he's basically going to argue, he's basically arguing, if it's based upon Christ, it is on a sure foundation. But if it's on tradition, or if it's on the elemental forces of the world, it will crumble. Now, tradition is something that's really, really powerful. We can all think of many traditions that we've experienced in our life. Traditions having to do with food, traditions having to do with gatherings, religious traditions, um, secular traditions. <clears throat> there are these things that we do, and we do, and we do, and we do them because at some point in time, someone instituted it, so we did it that way. Traditions are not all bad. In fact, many times, traditions can be good. The problem is, is when traditions take center stage instead of Christ, we lose the ability to filter them properly through God, his word, and his truth, and him, himself, right? When traditions move from a secondary stage up to the primary part, we can be led down any number of things based upon things that we've experienced. In fact, traditions are dangerous in part because they're really comfortable. They're really, really comfortable. I was reminded this week of <clears throat> this great movie and great play called Fiddler on the Roof. Anybody ever seen it? It's worth your time sometime. Um, great music. Um, and, and I say that, I actually haven't watched the whole thing, but the music is fantastic. So I'll clarify that. And there's a song that is called Tradition. And he begins the song, Tevye, who's the primary character in Fiddler on the Roof. He, he's talking to the camera and he's, he's a milkman. And he's just going about the daily things of life. He's an observant Jewish person. And he says, and how do we keep... How do we keep our balance in life, he says. That I can tell you in one word, he says, tradition. And then those of you who know it, you can kind of sing the song in your head. I won't for you this morning. Um, but tradition is one of those things that can really tie a culture together, but it can also lead a culture astray. Because part of the issue is that many times traditions are not bad, but sometimes <coughs> traditions lead us away from Christ. And here, Paul is concerned about these believers because he's concerned that they're going to base their walk on a human tradition and not on Christ. 
Think about some of the powerful traditions that are held even in religious circles today. For example, some believe it's part of their tradition that baptism is necessary for salvation. Now, baptism pictures being um, dying to the old man in you and being raised to walk in the newness of life. But it's a powerful tradition that some people maintain. I argue incorrectly based upon the scripture. Some people believe that last rites at the time of your passing secures a way to God. Other people hold that if a certain day is not observed in a specific way, then your eternal security could be in question. Some people hold that certain sins are worse than others. And so they elevate, well, if you did these, ooh, I'm not so sure about your salvation. But if you did these, well, God's grace covers that, right? The problem with tradition is it becomes, when it takes center stage, it becomes something that is not proper to be our filter. Because only God and his word can be our filter. Now, Jesus had a problem with tradition too. And it wasn't so much a problem with the tradition, but it was a problem with raising traditions over and above what God actually taught. Because what he's talking about here is man-made traditions. If you want to hold your place in Colossians, and just turn quickly back to Mark chapter 7 with me really quick. Go to Mark 7, please. In Mark chapter 7, Jesus is talking to Pharisees and scribes who'd come from Jerusalem, gathered around him, and they observed that some of Jesus' disciples, verse 2, were eating their bread with unclean, that is, unwashed hands. And there's a little parenthetical note here for the Pharisees. In fact, all the Jews will not eat unless they wash their hands ritually, keeping the tradition of the elders. So, <clears throat> You can see the showdown that's coming here. Jesus' disciples have, have not washed their hands, right? They're following the rabbi. The rabbi didn't wash their hands. Jesus' disciples didn't wash their hands. And the people, the Pharisees and the scribes are like, what are you doing? Don't you know that it's a tradition? Don't you know that it's a part of how we walk that we wash our hands before we do this? And Jesus says to them in verse 4, well, he's not talking yet. In verse 4 it says, When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they've washed. And there are many customs that they have received and keep like washing the, the, like the washing of cups, jugs, copper utensils, and dining couches. Verse 5 says, Then the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating bread with ritually unclean hands? There's the question, right? Why are you not living according to what our teachers have said? And that's an important thing because it seems to me that they even recognize these are the traditions of our teachers. But what Jesus responds with is he says, Isaiah prophesied correctly about you hypocrites. As it is written, these, pop, these people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They, they worship me in vain, teaching as doctrines the commands of men. Right? So the Pharisees have a, have a misplaced view of tradition. They've taken something that may or may not be a good or bad thing. And they've said, don't you know? And they haven't said, thus saith the Lord. But they've lived as though they've said, thus saith the Lord. And Jesus says, you missed the point. You're trying to honor God with what you do. And in fact, what you're doing is not even something that God told you to do. Is it bad to wash your hands ceremonially? Not necessarily. 
But if you've risen and brought this issue up to a central place within your faith, you frankly, he said, missed the point because you worship me in vain, teaching as doctrines the commands of men. You've elevated what someone said to a place where you're saying essentially that I've said it. He says in verse 8, disregarding the command of God, you keep the tradition of men. He also said to them, you completely invalidate God's command in order to maintain your tradition. In other words, for these Pharisees, and what he's trying to hone in on here, is he's saying, you've made all the things of your tradition more important than what I've actually called you to. And what's actually at the heart of my teaching. They've just misplaced things. And Paul is saying here, back in Colossians chapter 2, <clears throat> he is saying to them, be careful that tradition doesn't take center stage. Be careful that what you believe is not founded upon the things that you've just grown up doing because that's what you do because you grew up a fill in the blank, whatever your background is. Be careful that you don't elevate those things over and above the actual revelation of God in Christ Jesus. He wants them to make sure their hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. That's not the only thing he's concerned about, though. He's concerned about the traditions of men, but he's also concerned about them being taken captive through the elemental forces of the world. Now, the, the word here for elemental forces <coughs> is a Greek word that typically refers to forces that seek to enslave people. It's used a little bit later in our passage that we'll look at next week in verse 20. If you died with the Messiah, he says, to the elemental forces of this world, why do you live as though you still belong to them? So clearly from Paul's perspective, they are no longer bound by the powers of this world, right? The adversary has no hold on them. Their, their old way of living has no hold on them because they've died to it. If you want to sometime later today, you can go look in Galatians, <clears throat> Galatians chapter 4, verses 3 and verses 9. And this word is there used again to refer to forces that enslave people. In fact, Paul, I think it's in verse 15 here. Just double check it. Yeah. In verse 15, which we'll look at in a moment, he's, he says that Christ disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. And Paul seems to be describing here that Christ has triumph over all these rulers and authorities, even in a world and in a culture that seems to hold them captive. He, he's basically saying, you used to be subject to all these things. Don't be subject to them because you're not, because you're set free, because you are in Christ. But he wants them to live in light of that truth, right? They are, they are spiritually set free, but still they look to the things of the culture and they look to the things of the rulers and such around them and they say, this must be true because I've grown up my whole life thinking that this is the way that makes sense. And what what Paul is saying is he's saying, just kind of like he's saying with tradition, you need to take all the elemental forces, you need to set them way back on there because they do not take center stage in a life who has been redeemed by Christ. What takes center stage is none other than Christ himself. 
So he's saying, be careful, be careful, be careful, careful. And he wants them then to find their fullness in Christ. <clears throat> and here Paul does kind of an interesting thing. Because some would have said at that point in time, well, wasn't Jesus just a, a, a good teacher who walked on this earth? Or wasn't he someone who, who kind of had some of the parts of God to him? I mean, he did miracles and he performed wonders and stuff like that. But, but for him to really be God, I mean, think about the concept of God taking on human skin in the fullness of God and in the fullness of man is kind of a challenging thing for us to think about, Right? But it doesn't make it any less true. In fact, it is true because that's how Jesus reveals himself. One of the ways he, that Paul reveals this is he talks about in verse 9, for the entire fullness, right? The entire fullness, not a partial bit, not, not, not most of God's fullness, the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ, that's a pretty big thing. To say to a Jewish person, Yahweh, the one who took you by a hand and led you out of Egypt with a fire and a cloud, the one who spoke to Abraham, the one who was faithful to David, the one who allowed you to go into captivity because of your disobedience, but brought you back because of his steadfast love. Yahweh took on flesh and blood, not just in part, but in full. It's kind of a crazy thing to think about. In fact, the word here for nature in Greek, it's the word theotes, and it refers to the state of being God or having the divine character and nature, deity or divinity. Now, sometimes this word, or not this word, but sometimes a very closely related word is used. And it refers <clears throat> to, to someone or something that would manifest divine properties. In, in other words, um, in Romans chapter 1 is probably the best place to explain this. Let's see if I've got it. Yeah, in Romans chapter 1, it says this. This is verse 18. For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Verse 19. Since what can be known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, that is his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen since the creation of the world. The idea of the word behind nature here is, is one where you see the attributes of God. But that's not what Paul is talking about. In fact, there's actually, there's one letter difference between the word that's used there for nature. One, one letter, and it's a small iota, a small Greek letter. There's one letter difference between what he talks about, about these divine attributes of God, and what Paul is referencing here with theotes. Theotes is the fullness of God. It, it's every bit of who God is, is wrapped up in the person of Christ. It, it, it's founded in him. And he says, not only is the fullness of God's nature dwelling bodily in Christ, verse 10 says, and you have been filled by him. 
So think about it. He's not just saying that the fullness of God is in Christ. He's saying that Christ is in you. It's why in the beginning of Colossians, he can call you holy. It's because you've been made holy by the work of God. By Christ redeeming your sin through his blood. By Christ coming into your life upon your conversion. It's it's an incredible thing to consider. Paul is saying that Christ has all the fullness of God. He is not just a God as some religions might claim. He's not just a prophet. He is not just a good man. Paul wants his hearers to know that they were redeemed by God himself. They're filled by him and believers are given Christ upon their belief. We, we are filled by God himself who indwells believers. That doesn't mean that we become God ourselves, but it does give some perspective on how we can walk in victory, power, and freedom in this world. Paul moves from then this, so he's building the stage, right? What's at the center of your stage of truth? Here's who Christ is, because if we're going to base truth on something, it's got to be based in the fullness of God. Look to Christ. And then he says, he pulls out two different images. He talks about circumcision and he talks about baptism. Both of these images were very important to the ancient Jew. Um, Circumcision, you can go back to Genesis 17 and find out that Abraham was called by God to be circumcised. And that the people of Abraham, the Jewish people were called, the males of the Jewish people were called to be circumcised as well. But what's at the heart of circumcision is not just the removal of a part of skin. What's at the heart of circumcision for God is the heart behind it. You can look at this later, but in Deuteronomy 30 verse 6. All all the way back in the Torah, um, Moses, who's writing there, is talking about the need for God to circumcise the hearts of his people so they can love God with all their heart, their soul, their mind. Circumcision there doesn't take on a physical, it takes on a spiritual meaning. But there is a physical act of that for the Jewish people. Jeremiah chapter 4 verse 4 talks about the need for people to circumcise themselves. And in, in the context of that, it seems to refer to the need of repentance in their life before God. Romans chapter 2 verses 28 and 29 talk about how authentic Jewish faith like Abraham's is not marked by a visible cut, but rather by a change of one's heart by the Spirit. The point is that what was an external marker of covenant relationship, what is an external marker is not indicative necessarily of what's going on in someone's heart. You can take on a whole bunch of external things and your heart can be far from it. It's kind of like the traditions of the elders. They're they're trying to do this because this is what our elders have said and they've missed the whole teaching of God about what's actually at the heart of things. Circumcision is one of these pictures that is described here. And he says of this, and it kind of, it kind of weaves in and out of these next couple of verses. You also were circumcised in him, right? He, he's not actually talking about a physical circumcision here. He's talking about a circumcision, a, a cutting away of the heart here. You were circumcised in him, not done with hands, but by putting off the body of flesh or your old man or your former sinful nature in the circumcision of the Messiah. Then he goes from this to a picture of baptism. 
And for everyone here, I just included the picture of baptism, not the picture of circumcision. Um, (laughs) Sorry. Baptism, ritual immersion was also one of those things that was practiced regularly in the ancient period by observant Jews. In fact, there's all these ritual immersion pools that people would go into, and there's a whole ritual immersion process before you would go into the temple. Um, Jesus commands his believers, after they become followers of him, to undergo a baptism. And so when we baptize people, we will often say, you are buried in the likeness of Christ's death and you are raised to walk in the newness of life. Because baptism takes on a very, very important picture that who you were is now dead. And you've been raised to a new kind of life. Sometime later today, you might want to go check out Romans chapter 6. You don't need to turn there now. But Romans chapter 6 gives a great picture about how believers are baptized into Christ's death. And that the only way to find life in Christ is to die to the old man. And once you've been dead, Christ raises you up spiritually to have a newness of walk in your life. Baptism here in the context of Colossians chapter 2, doesn't refer to physical water baptism. And I'll read the passage in a minute. It's a spiritually, um, it's a spiritual idea here um, because being baptized into Christ's death has to do with a completed and unalterable action done by God. Again, it's not referencing water baptism here, but it understands this concept because this kind of baptism is something that God does to you and God does for you. Read with me, please, in verse 12 of Colossians chapter 2. Or sorry, verse 12, yeah, verse 12. Um, Having been buried with him in baptism. This is the baptism into the spirit that happens upon conversion. He says, you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. So when we go into a tank, all it is there to do in accordance with God's command to his disciples, by the way. So, so it's a teaching of Christ, which is why we do it. But what it pictures is it pictures the salvation that has already occurred in your life. How does that salvation occur? You were dead in your trespasses and sins. God made you alive, verse 13, with him, and he forgave us all our trespasses. Now, if you write in your Bibles, I want you to circle a, a, a word here. I want you to circle the word all. Because sometimes we think, well, God, I know you forgave me of that. And I know you forgave me of that. But God, if you only knew this one over here, that thing I used to do or that thing I did yesterday, he wouldn't forgive me of that. Just read it. He made you alive with him and forgave us all our trespasses, every way in which we walked in rebellion against God, ways in which we still walk in our own self-effort. He forgave them all, past, present, and future. As Paul talks about in Romans, that doesn't give us license to sin, but we have to understand that part of who we are in Christ is that God has forgiven you all your trespasses, all of them. He goes from there and he says, he erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us. And he has taken it out of the way by nailing it 
to a cross. In the ancient period, one of the things that would happen is you would have these, these ledgers. This is one that's in Greek. Um, they'd have these ledgers of here's what this person owes. <clears throat> and then at some point in time, when that debt was paid, they would come through. And one of the ways that they would mark that the debt was paid is they would put an X through it. Or they'd put a slash through it. Um, this is, you know, something that's not permanent in the sense of it's a piece of papyrus and it can easily be thrown away or lost or something like that. But what I want you to see here, and it's kind of hard to see, on the, right, on the left-hand side of your screen, you have, uh, you have a name. And there's a whole bunch of Greek writing, and you don't need to know what all that's about. But there's a name here of an awful Roman emperor named Domitian. After Domitian was dead, the Roman Senate said, we want to erase his memory from every place that we can. So on this side, Domitian, Domitian, on this side, what they did is they scrubbed it out. They took to marble, they took to stone and chiseled it out. And I want you to get this picture because when it says that Christ has forgiven all of your debts, that he has removed them or he has, he has erased the certificate of debt, he's doing what's going on here. They would have known this. When my debt is paid, it's crossed off. I no longer owe. They would have looked at things like this and gone, yeah, that ruler was, we don't know. Because when God looks at your sin, if you are in Christ, he looks at you and he goes, what debt? It's been paid. And the debt that was paid cost something to him. It's a gift to us, but it cost him. It cost Christ's life. And so we have this picture that Paul wants these believers to know how much they are forgiven. They're forgiven all. Finally, last picture here. Verse 15, it says, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and he disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them. This word triumph is kind of a fun word because it refers to something that Roman citizens knew of very well. Rome was a very powerful army. And one of the things that would happen, um, it happened several hundred times in the last couple hundred years of, um, of, of the, before the turn of the century. Um, they would have what's called a triumph. A triumph is where a commanding general would be given the authority to bring his troops into Rome and to throw a victory parade, right? The, he, it was one of the only times in which they could celebrate this kind of way. And you had to be a pretty high commanding general, and you had to have quite a bit of conquering underneath you for you to be able to have this party, which is called a triumph. It's kind of like if, if there's a, um, in, in a much grander way, I guess, <clears throat> If a sports team wins a major championship. I mean, if you win a game, you'd be like, high five, way to go. We're back at it tomorrow. But if you won the entire title, you might have a parade through the streets. When Jesus is being noted here as one who triumphed, what he's saying, what Paul is saying in Roman language is, you know that thing that Roman soldiers do when they've won and they've conquered a people. 
That's what Christ does because he has conquered sin. He's conquered death. He's conquered every force and every authority and every ruler. And what would happen, and I'll explain this photo to you. Um, this photo describes what happened after um, AD 70. Um, the temple was destroyed by the Romans. And they have some leaders here and they're carrying off the loot that comes from the temple like menorah. And they've got conquered peoples that they take into a different area. Because it's not just a, hey, we won. It's let me show you all the things that we have just triumphed over. When you get this picture, I want you to think of going into a crowded city. And all of a sudden, everything in the city stops because the conquering team has just come through. And they're saying, we have triumphed. And that is what is going on. That is what has happened spiritually because of Christ's death. Don't miss how big of a deal this was. Something like 200 to 300 times this happened in the entire Roman Empire. Right? So it wasn't happening every day, but it always happened when there was a major conquering of people. And that's what Christ has done for you and for me. He has conquered the rulers. He's conquered the authorities. He's conquered everything that would hold us back from him being center stage in our life. A couple of things as we go to communion. Invite the worship team to come on up right now. A couple of applications. The first one is this. God wants us to walk in the triumph accomplished by Christ. We can celebrate, as we have sung this morning, that we have power in Christ over sin and over death. We have victory. We have freedom. And it's not because we've done something. It's because he has led the conquering. It's because he's taken out every spiritual ruler and authority that could compete and we join his triumph parade. But the question comes to each of us because that can only be experienced. That kind of victory in Jesus can only be experienced if we are in Christ. Are you in Christ today? If you're in Christ today, I want you to walk out of here. God wants you to walk out of here knowing you've been forgiven for all your sins. You've been set free. You can lead your life with walking with him. Not that you lead your life, but you can walk with him in your life. And you can have joy and you can have um, fellowship with him every moment of every day, regardless of how you feel, regardless of what has happened. You can always go back to him. You are not defined by your sin if you're in Christ because you are a new creation. Secondly, because you are a new creation, Paul says, I want you to leave the traditions and the captive philosophies that sound comfortable, but they're, they're serving as a substitute in your walk with Jesus. Hear me clearly. I'm not saying traditions are bad. But with every tradition, we must always go back and say, Lord, is this how I walk with you today? Is this what you would have me do? Because tradition 
and the rulers and authorities of the world, they don't take center stage. Only Christ does. And we must be careful in religious circles in our walk with Christ to not elevate the things that should not be elevated. Because when we elevate them wrongly, they take the place of Christ in how we walk. Our Father and our King, we pray for the wisdom to know where we're walking in tradition, <clears throat> where we're walking according to the elementary principles of this world, and where we have a foundation that is not based upon Christ. Reveal that to us uniquely, and Lord, for those who are kicking the tires of faith in you today, pray that they would see the fullness of God in Christ and the sufficiency of Christ's death and resurrection to bring forgiveness of all of their sins and to bring life in your name. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope that what you heard inspires you to take the next step in your faith. If you have questions about this message or would like more information about our church, we invite you to check us out at fbczealand.org or call us at 616-772-4377.